This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce and Ashley Hales, a pastor and PhD. Welcome to this conversation. Well, today we are talking with Christopher Watkin. Chris teaches uh, French studies at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and is the author of the new book, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. Chris, uh, welcome to the Cartographers Podcast. We're really excited to talk with you today. Thank you, Bryce. And hi, Ashley. It's lovely to be with you. Yes, thanks. So, Chris, I've really been looking forward to this conversation because I think your book was my favorite book of 2022. Uh, I I feel like I'm supposed to play it cool, but I I hope I don't fanboy out too much. Um, (laughs) You're really excited to talk with you. Let's start with the title of the book. I've seen this happen on uh, more than one occasion where a friend will maybe be sharing your book on Facebook and inevitably it feels like somebody in the comments will express some concern about uh, the critical theory part of, of the title and, um, you know, critical race theory having become such a kind of culture war hot button issue in the last couple of years. Can you just give us a sense for what your project is here and what you mean by the term biblical critical theory? Yeah, thank you. The, the premise behind the title is that critical theory in its fundamental dynamic and in its origin is actually a really thoroughly biblical thing to do. So I mean critical theory in the sense of taking a step back from the way things are in society, from the status quo, and critiquing the way things are in in view of something better, a vision for a better society. And if you think about where that whole idea comes from in our tradition, that there are huge biblical influences. So the Old Testament prophets, for example, within Hebrew society, take a step back and say, these kings are not doing a good job. You don't get stuff like that in Babylon or Assyria, or or if you do, people are killed really quickly. But there's this very odd institution of the prophets in uh, Hebrew society. And then, of course, you know, Jesus uh, is is a very harsh social critic in his day, excoriating the the Pharisees uh, for what they're doing and and the, the religious leaders of his day. And also then in Christian history, in the history of the church, if you try and find the first time in the Western tradition, that someone takes a whole society, takes a step back from it, and critiques it, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anything earlier than Augustine's City of God. And the reason that he can do that is that he's got a better view of society, a better vision of society that's not coming from Rome itself, but it's coming from the Bible. So that gives him a critical standpoint to look at Rome and say, compared to the, the beautiful City of God, 
that comes out of the Bible, this, this city of Rome is, is obnoxious and repulsive. And it's that position of being able to stand back from society and say, I've, I, I can, I've got a vision for something better that is fundamental to critical theory. You can't critique something unless you know what's wrong with it. And you can't know what's wrong with it unless you've got a vision of what's good and what's bad. And that's why I think critical theory in that sense is just fundamentally Christian. And it is quite hard to get an angle on the society in which you live to critique it if you think that that society is all there is, if, if there is no reality outside it to give you a perspective on it. And so I, I think the, the enterprise of critical theory is thoroughly theological and thoroughly Christian, and therefore, in a sense, saying biblical critical theory is, is just recapturing, if you like, uh, repatriating what is originally and fundamentally a, a, a Christian impulse. You know, it's really fun because back when I was starting out my PhD in English, um, I went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and there was a, a group of us there, um, all Christians, scholars, women from Germany and England and lots of different countries. And we, we started a, a reading group about, you know, how do we read Derrida? How do we read Foucault? Like, um, as Christians. And so I'm so excited that you, you have created this resource. Um, because there was a lot, I think, in my own graduate work where I was presented all of these tools of the academy on the one hand, um, but nothing that was comparable for Christians on the other hand. Would you say something about that? It is the ways in which your own work is bridging um, your faith on the one hand and your academic interests. I'd love to say something about that. It's so odd, isn't it, that there aren't those Christian resources there because the, the Bible is, is bubbling over with this sort of thinking. So the, the, the way that I try to unpack it in the book is that what all of these different critical theories, you know, David of Foucault, the other people you were reading, is on one level, they're trying to make certain things viable, certain beliefs viable. So look at the world this way. This is possible. Now, a sort of, um, caricatural example of that is Marx. You read enough Marx and you can see how a revolution can happen, whereas before you you never thought something like that was possible. They're also trying to make certain things in the world visible, you know, so that the feminist theories, theorists will say, look at the way that women have been repressed in society over all these centuries. Notice that, you know, don't let that fly under your radar anymore. Make it visible. And they're also making certain things in the world valuable, like prize this, you know, prize the, for someone like, like Derrida, the, the transgression of, of norms, the, the, the disruption of identity. You, sh you should want that to be valuable. Um, and among all the things that the Bible's doing, you know, and absolutely it's the, uh, the, the word of God that makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the sword of the spirit, all of that. And also it is making certain things viable and visible and valuable. So, you know, you might, and a lot of people today do just laugh at the idea of trusting the God of the Bible. That's just not viable. Like there's no context in which that category makes sense. But you read enough of the Bible and you realize what it would mean to trust this sort of God who makes this sort of promises. It becomes viable in your world. And the, the Bible makes certain things visible as well. There's the beautiful psalm, isn't there? The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, you might never have looked up at a beautiful sunset before and thought, wow, isn't God glorious? But the Bible teaches you to see that, makes it visible for you in that sense. And, and of course, the Bible also makes certain things valuable. 
Um, you can't read far into either the, the Old Testament or the New Testament without seeing what a valuable thing it is within a biblical frame to serve other people. And you may never have thought that serving other people was something you should desire for your life. I certainly didn't when I was young before I read the Bible. Like, why on earth would you do that? Um, but the Bible shows you how valuable that is. And, and in that sense, the Bible is, is acting in the same way. It's doing the same sort of things as these critical theories are doing. Obviously, with very different results. It's making different things, Bible, visible, and valuable. But it's still doing that work. And I think it's on that basis that you can bring these different approaches into conversation. And you can say, well, let's look at what you're making Bible visible and valuable, you know, Monsieur Foucault or, or Derrida. And then let's look at how the Bible is doing that. Let's just compare those two, those two views of the world. To what extent do you feel like your book has been received amongst, you know, more secular critical theorists? Is it is it a viable way of looking at the world for those who don't already purport to believe in the Bible? I, I think predominantly, actually, it's a really interesting question. I, I think predominantly it's been received by Christians so far. I think the fact that it's come out with Zondervan, a Christian publisher, means that there's quite a high barrier to people who are not Christian picking it up and reading it. Um, so I'm, I'm not aware uh, of... Uh, of anyone within the secular academy who's engaged with it meaningfully yet. My hope is that if they do, they will find a an account of secular thought that they can believe in, that they, they would say, yes, that is what these people actually say and what they actually think. Um, and my hope is that they'd find an account of Christianity that might surprise them somewhat, that it's it's not your grandmother's Christianity. It's not the Christianity that gets presented in the news media um, regularly. I, I would hope that there'd be some things that would, would take people slightly off guard in, in what the, the Bible really says, which is often really quite different to the ideas people have of what Christianity is. Chris, one of the things that strikes me about your book, um, and I mean, just I, I love how you said that um, making something viable and visible, it strikes me that that is... Um, part of what culture does, the, the work of culture, it makes certain things seem possible and other things impossible or less possible. And I, I wonder uh, how much of, um, it, we're, it, we're living through this time where it feels like culture is changing dramatically. And so um, things that were cultural norms, let's just say when I was born, like uh, there are moral absolutes. There is a God. There, there probably we probably do need to be forgiven. Um, there is a thing uh, called life after death. Um, we lived in a world where the work of Christianity then was to kind of connect the dots and say all these things that you believe inherently about the world uh, find their meaning in in the God of the Bible. Uh, now that's not so much the case. And so one of the things that struck me about your book is that you seem to be working hard to contextualize or, or to, to tell the story of the Bible in a way that, that does that work of making, um, you know, the story of the Bible visible and viable again in a, in a world that has lost that sense of this makes sense. I mean, is, is that part of um, what you were attempting to do in the book? I think it is, Bryce. Um, I think you're absolutely right that it's not simply a case of joining up the dots anymore, you know, that people believe that there is some 
some burden of guilt that they shoulder and they need it forgiven and we just point them to where it can be forgiven. I, I think that's true. I think one of the key things to, to try and help everyone to see now, Christians and non-Christians in our society, is that the, the way that any individual sees the world is not necessary um, in the sense that I think it's, it's always the danger if you subscribe to the hegemonic ideology of any particular culture, and, and ours would probably be some sort of secularism today, to think that all sensible people begin believing what you believe, and then some weird people go off and add some craziness to it. Um, and for the longest time, that used to be Christianity. That used to be the obvious thing to believe. And then, you know, atheists were just weird or trying to justify their immorality or, you know, whatever the arguments were. But now the, the shoe's on the other foot. And it's a temptation, I think, for secular people to think that secularism is just obvious and self-evident and only crazy people believe other stuff. And I think one really important thing to try and help people who subscribe to that hegemonic ideology today to see is that it, it really isn't. Like, there's no position that is obvious and simply common sense. You just look around the world, look at what different people believe, look at what different people have believed throughout history. It's, it's very arrogant for anyone to say, my position is where everybody starts or where everybody should start. And then, you know, some people go off the rails. Um, it's quite, it's quite a, a, an uncomfortably imperialistic gesture to say that. But, but I think that's one of the things that, that needs to, to be said apologetically today, um, because you could be forgiven for going through a whole lifetime in our society thinking that um, secularism is, is simply common sense today. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's really a powerful point. Um, you know, I really appreciate too, in your book, just some of the terminology that you're, you're teasing out, um, this idea of diagonalization. There's so many syllables in that word there. Um, um, but, you know, you, you, you talk about that idea that, you know, pointing out, for instance, that our culture often wants to present two opposite positions um, or ideas in this sort of dichotomy. Um, and maybe even thinking about the way in which we could think of secularism as, you know, in one box and kind of religious thinking or um, in another box and not actually seeing that they interact in any way. And so you're saying what the Bible does actually is is gets us out of that um, sort of ways of thinking through this process of diagonalization. So could you help our listeners just understand what does this look like? Um, what do you mean by that term? And secondly, um, maybe give us an example of what that would look like in like, you know, you, you go to your neighborhood book club or something and you're presented with a different idea um, from someone who comes from a very different world and life view than your own. How do you use diagonalization in that moment? Yeah, thank you, Ashley. Um, one example of diagonalization, uh, I think a quite a, a powerful example, one that I've been convicted by um, as I've been thinking about these things recently, is the way in which the, the beautiful account of humanity in Genesis 1 holds two things together in harmony that get ripped apart and opposed to each other in our culture. So in the image of God motif, you've got the idea that human beings have a rare dignity you know, of, of everything in the whole creation. Only human beings are in the image of God. 
you know, not a beautiful sunset, not a great concerto or, or, or whatever, only human beings. That's, that's an amazing dignity. But in the same image, you've got the idea that human beings are humbled because precisely we're not God, we're the image of God. Uh, there is a God and we're not him. Uh, and that's quite humbling. Um, but there's no sense in the image of God motif that those two things are in tension with each other. It's not that like we're half dignified and then half humbling and that they're struggling against each other. But what modern anthropologists do, um, one way of looking at them at least, is that they take those two harmonious biblical truths, they rip them apart from each other, and they very awkwardly set them up against each other. So some modern anthropologists will say things like, you know, we are fundamentally just machines. We're very complicated machines, but but if you face the brute reality of it, we are just machines. Or, or we, we're just animals with no difference from, from any other animal. And that captures something in a, in a twisted, distorted way of, of the humbling of human beings. We're not God. Um, and, and that's important to recognize. We are part of the creation. We're on the creature side of the creator-creature distinction. Um, but there are also modern anthropologists that ascribe to human beings attributes and powers that traditionally were ascribed to God alone. Um, and John Milbank is really good on this in the opening chapters of Theology and Social Theory. He shows you how the, the tradition of voluntarism in theology has actually become our anthropology. So the voluntarist God is a God for whom nothing is impossible. Nothing can stand in the way of his will. And, and it gets quite extreme in voluntarism. So for example, um, in, people like Descartes will say, if God wants two and two to make 48, he can, because the laws of logic are no impediment to his will. Uh, and P Milbank argues people have taken that idea uh, and uh, used it as a way to understand human beings today. So, so we have to make reality in our own image. We have to decide what's good and evil. Nothing should stand in the way of our will. We define ourselves and our world in a, in a really quite voluntary sort of way. And so modernity sort of serves you up on a plate, these two clashing anthropologies. You know, you're a machine. Oh, and by the way, you're also a voluntarist God. Now go and live your life happily and in a contented way. And it's really hard, really hard to do that. And so to diagonalize that dichotomy is to say, well, why have you ripped these things out of their original biblical context to begin with? There's a beautiful harmony to be found between the humbling that you're trying to get at by saying we're machines and the, the, the dignity you're trying to get at by making us gods. But you've, you've messed up the relationship between them. So now there's just a clashing sort of violent um, relationship between the two. And so to diagonalize them is not to split the difference. And I think this is what some people get wrong when they try and get their heads around my term diagonalizing or other people have called it the third way. They think it's just splitting the difference between what's out there in society. So, you know, saying something like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're half machines and half gods or something like that. And of course, that's a silly position and it deserves to be rejected. But that's, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that modern anthropology dismembers um, and uh, rips out of its original biblical context certain biblical truths and then sets them up against each other. And what we've got to do is, if you like, find the first way, get back to the original biblical truth rather than just split the difference between what we find out there in society. And what's maybe just a quick, um, how do we begin to kind of 
prime that muscle? I think a thorough sort of bathing in the scriptures, so to speak, um, is is just so incredibly helpful. Uh, getting both a sense of individual books and passages, but also developing our sense of the sweep of the Bible storyline. And I think this is what Augustine does so impressively in the City of God. He's got such a command of the shape of the biblical story that he can bring it to bear really precisely on different things that he's seeing out there in the Roman world. And as he tells the story of the Bible, he tells it in such a way that it shows you the inadequacies of Rome. And, and so I guess if there's one thing to do, it's, it's really to become more and more familiar with the, the biblical storyline and its nuances and its contours and its, its multi-layered, multifaceted um, uh, way of presenting things. And, and then I suppose to be on the lookout for um, dichotomies in modern society. They, not, not everything is a dichotomy, and of course not all dichotomies are, are false. That would be you know, reductive to say, but there are a lot of them. And I think modern society in particular um, thrives on constructing dichotomies. Um, and once, once we're primed to, to see them, um, there are a lot of them out there to find. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Chris, one of the um, things, other sort of keys, I think maybe to, to the methodology in your book comes out when you talk about out-narrating. And uh, I, I loved this because it felt like you were putting words to what I am trying to figure out how to do as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, um, it, you, you write that out narrating is not so much about telling a better story in the sense of something being more entertaining or more gripping or, or satisfying, but it's about telling the bigger story, the story within which all the other stories find their place. And I, I really appreciate that because it can often feel like Christianity is trying to just offer counterpoints to secular narratives. Um, and it's it's like we're trying to just, you know, go point for point. But I get the sense that what you're talking about here is out narrating is, no, there's a bigger story. And once we've understood that story, the count, 
the point counterpoint dynamic sort of just fizzles out a little bit. Can you maybe speak to that or give us an example of what out narrating looks like in practice? Absolutely, Bryce. I, I couldn't agree more really with, with what you're saying. And I think this is why Augustine's City of God is the paradigmatic apologetic example um, for our age, because this is exactly what he does. He, he tells the whole story of the Bible from before creation um, to the final consummation of all things as a way to show that the story that Rome tells about itself is an impoverished and quite small and inadequate story by comparison. And I, I agree also with, with what you said, that there's a danger because issues present themselves immediately. So, you know, fires start that need to be put out, so to speak, in the culture, that, that if we just concentrate on putting out those individual fires, we, we end up, to mix metaphors for a moment, sort of seeing ourselves as some sort of apologetic SWAT teams that just sort of parachute <laughs> into a particular situation, neutralize a, a, a given opponent, and, and then are airlifted out again. And the problem with that um, is that you, you're never setting forth a, a better vision, and you're never giving people chance to see what a coherent Christian approach to reality looks like. And, and, you know, you always get characterized as people who are against everything because, you know, you're parachuting in and you're saying, this is not right. You know, we need, we need to denounce this, whatever it is. Um, and it's not unreasonable for people to conclude that you're, you're quite curmudgeonly if, if that's all you're ever seen to be doing. Um, so what, um, what Augustine does, and I think this is the pattern for, for us today, is to unfold a positive, beguiling, challenging Christian vision, biblical vision for the whole of society. And within that vision then, to be critiquing the, the idols of our day and, and the, the tensions and the contradictions of our day um, that appear miserly and wrongheaded compared to the, the beautiful Christian vision that, that, that we're seeking to unfold. Yeah, I mean, the, the miserly aspect of it um, certainly comes out when we think about how, how the conversation about human sexuality often plays out. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, I think I'm getting this right. You grew up in England and you, you live in Australia now. So I'm assuming like kind of American culture wars were not uh, the, the, at the forefront of your mind as you're writing this book. And yet there's a lot of relevance here, but sort of on that topic, even uh, you, you reference in your book, um, Tom Holland's work in dominion. And I think essentially what Tom Holland is, is, and he's not writing as a Christian, but what he's doing is he's saying, actually these values that have undergirded Western society uh, we are now trying to carry on those values while denying the foundation on which they were based, which is the story of the Bible, uh, which seems like a, a really complicated thing to do. It's an experiment. We, I don't think, I, I don't know if we know what the outcome is going to be yet. I don't know if that's going to work um, for secular society. I mean, how do you see um, out narrating playing into that discussion? I, I read Tom Holland's book with, with great profit and Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe as well, which is treading similar territory, I, I, I thought was really helpful. Um, I'm 
in response to your question, I'm reminded of something that Jean-François Lyotard, the philosopher who, who wrote, you know, the postmodern condition, the um, key sort of touchstone text of, of postmodernism. He's got this really interesting idea, and I think it's right, that he says our um, society runs on the fuel of what he calls the emancipation narrative. In other words, we see ourselves as those who understand ourselves to be those who are, sorry, this is a long sentence, um, constantly being emancipated from something or other. And we see that as our identity and we, we chart our progress in terms of these successive emancipations. And he sort of reads it through Hegel and, and various people. But there's a sense in which I, I think he's put his hand on something really important, that the the impulse to be progressively emancipated it is the way, and this is not a, actually just a, a left thing, although the word emancipation is often identified with the left, that there is a, a, a right, a libertarian emancipation as well, you know, emancipation from big government and, and red tape and so forth. So this is not a party political point I'm making. I think it's across society that there's a desire to be liberated from particular things that we think are holding us back. And that's the way that we see progress. If we're being emancipated, we're making progress. If we're not, we aren't. And that's the way we see ourselves as the emancipators and the emancipated. And there are two things I think to say about that. The first is um, that this idea sinks its roots deeply into the biblical story, particularly the, the Exodus story, uh, which is where this whole idea of founding our identity on being emancipated, on being liberated, comes from. Um, it's quite an odd story to tell about the founding of a nation, that we were slaves and now we have been freed and that is who we are. You know, God has carried us on eels' wings and so forth. Um, you, you don't find that in other ancient stories. You know, Aeneas and the founding of Rome or, or, or the founding of Athens and so forth. That it's, it's a noble warrior of great renown you know, sort of in his great wisdom and you know, benevolence. It's, it's, it's a very aristocratic sort of story, often. Um, and so this idea that we are the liberated ones comes into our tradition through the Exodus. Um, and there, there are a couple of really good books on this. Michael Waltz's Exodus and Revolution and John Coffey's Exodus and Liberation tell the story of how this, this motif then comes to shape the modern world really quite profoundly and how Exodus language keeps popping up at key moments in the development of our society. And we read ourselves through this narrative uh, time and again. And what the Bible does to that is rather than sort of setting itself up against this idea that we are emancipated and liberated, because this is right at the, the heart of the Bible story. Like the Exodus is, is the peak event of the Old Testament. And Paul's language about salvation is all exotic. It, it runs through the whole Bible. So the Bible doesn't oppose this, but what it does is it sets it within a bigger story. So Exodus is one moment in the biblical narrative. You've got creation, you've got fall, and it's part of the, the, the redemption narrative, a really important part of it, but it's not the whole story. And so the, the, I think the biblical critique of the emancipation narrative is to say, yes, but, but as part of a, a bigger story. So if the only tool you have in your toolbox is emancipation and liberation, you're going to become the equivalent of that 
person with a hammer for whom everything is a nail. You know, you're going to become the, the person with an emancipation narrative for whom everything is an oppression. Um, and and, and your, your emancipation is going to eventually become like a wheel spinning in the air with no friction on anything, no, no, no purchase um, on anything. And, and so I think what, what Christianity has to offer is it puts emancipation in a broader context of a story that makes sense of it in a deeper way than you're able to do if you've simply got what, what Lyotard calls an emancipation narrative. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And, you know, as I think even in, in your own work does this, you know, as we as we put terms and names and categories around things, then we can at least begin to notice, right, some of these these patterns that we see um, in the news or in our own lives or the ways in which we, we react together. You know, one thing that we are really interested in um, in thinking about is, you know, that that Christians in this day and age do kind of the hard work of reconstruction. And there's been a lot said about deconstruction, of course. And I think a lot of the last several years has been a really un, a helpful untangling of culture, maybe on the one hand and Christianity on the other. And, um, and yet often we can tend to think that any sort of critical theory is only a deconstructive work, or at least any modern critical theories. Um, so how, but you know it but what you are trying to do and we've talked or we've talked about this in our conversation is to say you know to bathe in the scriptures right to to hear and re-enchant our imaginations f- with the story of the bible so that there's actually something worth building upon um help us to think how as christians in this cultural moment we can both of course be untangling but more than that be actually you know telling that better story what does that look like and maybe kind of a sidebar question might be, how do we begin to use some of your own good thinking and work that you've done for preachers, for leaders, for for folks who are saying, oh, this is really fascinating information, but I do want to be transformed so that I, you know, I look like, I look like a different neighbor um, in my normal life. I think to, to the question of what, how to not stop critiquing and yet also cast a better vision. The the answer really, I think, is there in Paul's treatment of his ambient cultural values in 1 Corinthians 1. So he brilliantly does both of the things that, that I, you were suggesting there, Ashley. So first of all, he says, um, uh, Greeks uh, seek wisdom, Jews demand miraculous signs. Uh, we preach Christ crucified. Uh, foolishness to the Greeks and, and weakness to the Jews. So, so he's setting a hard contrast, a hard antithesis between the, the message that the Bible is bringing and, and the culture, um, and in a sense denouncing um, the, the culture as, as he does that. But then a couple of verses later, he also says that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And at that point, He's, if you like, doing the fulfillment piece and saying that these cultural values find their, their ultimate and resonant fulfillment in the cross of Christ. So if you really are serious about looking for wisdom, you Greeks, you need to come to the cross because that is the fullness of the wisdom you're seeking. And if Jews, you really want miraculous, powerful signs, then you're going to find nothing more miraculous or powerful uh, than the cross. And 
it's the way that he manages to articulate both of those together. So he doesn't renounce his critiquing of the culture around him in order to show how it's fulfilled in the cross. But he he doesn't just he doesn't just renounce uh, and critique. He also shows the Jews and the Greeks how to have the fullness of what they're searching for in Christ. And I think that's that that's but well, first of all, it's a biblical pattern, isn't it? And secondly, I think it's just so helpful because it cuts across the pitched battles that you sometimes get in Christian cultural critique these days between the antithesis and denunciation people who are always just banging the drum for culture, you know, has gone to hell in a handcart and uh, the Bible is is like oil and water. They, they just don't mix. And then the other sort of fulfillment people who are always desperate to try and get alongside culture and say, what you're looking for is, is really found in Christ. Just look for it a bit harder and you'll, you'll find it in him. Um, and then those two groups end up throwing stones at each other. Uh, Paul shows how it, both of those have their place in a full-orbed Christian cultural critique, um, but you can't miss either of them if you want to be fully and, and, and richly biblical. So, so that would be the model that I certainly try and follow myself and that I would commend as a way to try and um, come to terms with what's happening in culture. The, the second question you asked as to how these ideas can, can help pastors and so forth, I, I find myself a little bit ill-equipped to answer because I'm not a pastor myself. So, you know, fools rush in where... Bryce, you can jump in here, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know, Chris, as we kind of um, think about maybe moving towards the end of our conversation, even, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in talking about how listeners might make use of your book. And it's a, it's a very thick book. It could be... Uh, a little intimidating perhaps, but I, I can imagine several ways that your book will be really useful depending on who the reader is. But so I'm a pastor and it strikes me that one of the really important things that you're doing is you're asking the so what question. And I think that's so important for pastors because whether, you know, in, in, in terms of sermon prep or other settings, so often we have commentaries that are great at helping explain what a text means but ministry is constantly requiring us to apply the Bible to people and to contexts. Um, and, and so I wonder if you see that as a particular need in the time that we're living in to uh, help Christians not only be able to articulate sort of the what of Christian theology, um, but also to be able to bring that biblical wisdom to bear on the issues that we face culturally. From my particular neck of the woods, having no panoptic vision of Christian culture whatsoever, I, I would say that there is a deficit of understanding the explosive, delicious richness of the Bible for shaping a way of being in the world today. If you just take something like the the persistent grace that there is and the, the priority of grace throughout the Bible, you know, right from the, the very first pages of the Bible that God wasn't compelled through any necessitarian logic to create the world. It, it, it appears that the creation is, is an act of, uh, of love as far as we can tell from the Bible. 
But then, you know, Noah found it, finding grace in the eyes of the Lord out of literally nowhere, like nothing scripts that moment where Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's just, where did that come from? Uh, and then the, the, the promises to Abraham and the covenants, and of course, supremely, Christ's death on the cross as, as an overflow of grace. The, the way in which this priority of the gift over the contract and the transaction shapes a whole approach to life and a whole way of being in the world, both individually and on a corporate level as the church. I, I think there's a lot of work we've still got to do to appropriate that and take it to heart and live out that, you know, radically subversive way of being in the world. Because today everything's about transaction and calculating profit and loss, not simply financially, but but also often it creeps into our relationships as well, doesn't it? Um, but to be able to, to live out of a, a radically gift-oriented reality and, and to, to appropriate that into our own hearts as the way that God relates to us as well, I think is really transformative in ways that, that we haven't yet fully lent into as, as churches. Hmm. That's really, really great. Um, thank you for just painting such a really beautiful picture of, yeah, the way in which our faith is, isn't some privatized sort of experience, um, but has ramifications, of course, across the world. So um, we appreciate so much your, your, your good scholarly work. I just quickly want to know, how, like, how long did this book take you to write? Like, and how did you keep source? How did you keep track of all your sources? I was so impressed. <laughs> More organized scholar than I am, for sure. I, I'm, I'm glad it looks as though it's organized. It's, it's sort of the duck, <laughs> isn't it? Above, above the water, it's gliding along serenely. And then below the water, its feet are going like the clappers. <laughs> it's a big mess. Um, I started writing it in about 2015, I think, and on and off since then. So it, it's taken a while. Well, well, thank you. We appreciate your good work and we look forward to hearing more. Thanks so much, Chris, for being with us. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.